Hello, this is the History Voyager, a podcast about history. This is Season 1, A Deep Dive into the Spanish Flu. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. You can, of course, follow me on at Charlie Benz on Twitter. You can also look me up at thehistoryvoyager.com. Now, let's dive in. Okay, one of the defining features of this pandemic was that it followed the U.S. military around at the, at the camp level, okay? Every single military camp from California to Florida became a loci of infection. Now, what's interesting about that is, or sad, is not only did the camps become a loci of infection, but the towns became a loci of infection. Now, let's remember something about flu or disease, okay? Up until then, the, the, the working generation before then had to deal with the Russian flu. Now, remember what I said? Remember I said the Russian flu was thought to be carried by Eastern Europeans? Okay, and modern virologists and historians today don't even think it was the Russian flu. They think it was the Chinese or southern China, where the flu started. But see, they, at the time of World War I, did not understand that. So they thought it was Eastern European, right? So, obviously, right here as modern people, we can see that this flu is going to challenge how people, how professionals, but also how, like, governments, and that's local, state, and federal in America, and whatever form of government they have elsewhere in the world are going to confront this flu. Because here's the truth about pandemics. All right, disease is natural. Disease comes of nature. But the pandemic, and this is not a political statement, I want to make that clear. The pandemic is always man-made because a pandemic is always how man addresses the natural disease upon its population. So, the one of the defining features of the 1918 flu was that it was forcing people to address long-held racial beliefs because one of the ways that it spread so far and wide is that whatever, like, Whatever, wherever you were, like whatever group of people that you thought you didn't like was who you inevitably thought only got the flu. So obviously your medical professionals and stuff because of how racist society was all across the globe. I'm not, I'm not saying that one group of people was less racist than another group, but I am saying that racism prevailed throughout society. So all across the globe, right, whatever race was your doctors, right? You thought those doctors, they can't get the flu. Well, when the doctors were coming up with the flu, that was really one of the defining features of the Spanish flu was that it was hitting, you know, the younger folks, but also the younger working professional medical staff. One of the defining features of the Spanish flu which was basically new to the era because remember that the Spanish flu was the first flu 
or the first disease really of any kind that existed or happened during industrialization. So one of the things that was new that we today would just totally not think of at all was that it was traveling through shipping routes and also using the war, that is World War I, as essentially a blender. So what was happening here was that all sorts of people were coming up with the Spanish flu. That is, all sorts of humans were coming down with this disease, which before never would have done, you know, you would have before, you would have, you know, like with, say, the Black Death, you had diseases that just didn't come to North America or Australia or wherever. Well, the Spanish flu wasn't like that. The Spanish flu went everywhere. And this could prove, you know, this was what could prove that all humans were essentially biologically the same, that our differences were cultural or they were skin deep, but they were not physiological, right? So the African was not literally a separate species from the Asian or, say, even the Northern European was not literally a different species from, say, the Mediterranean person. Like, this was new knowledge that was proliferating down to folk because of, essentially because of the Spanish flu. And that was a tremendous, I guess, revelation to some folks. Anyway, so the thing you need to understand about the Spanish flu was that while the Spanish flu was going on, it was never actually understood. People thought while it was happening that it was a weapon of war that either the Germans or the Americans or whoever had perfected. The Spanish flu also had another very curious side effect, not per se on the dead, and not even really on the living, but on the governments of the living. The Spanish flu was one of the things that, you know, really caused governments right around the globe to start keeping causes of death. And this is actually one of the main reasons why, you know, the, the number of dead that the Spanish flu, you know, claimed is so, I guess, so wide-ranging or different. It's, it's fascinating. It really is fascinating to see, like, the order of magnitude and the scale of the death is just totally bizarre. Um... And that's because so many, like I say, so many of the deaths are essentially interpolated later um, into the death total. But also you had a, a great number of authorities all over the world, a, a great number of governmental authorities that literally started thinking, well, God, we better, you know, keep up with death statistics because of the Spanish flu. It is entirely possible to think of the Spanish flu in terms of raw numbers. 
the Spanish flu caused a single-handed. Hold on, what? The Spanish flu essentially is a story of numbers, or at least it can be. So I'm going to give you a number. In 1917, men and women in the USA could live to 54 years. In 1918, men and women could live, according to life expectancy uh, charts, to 36 years. This drop is entirely due to the Spanish flu. Well, it's due to the Spanish flu, but it's also due to Spanish flu adjacent deaths. So, right away we see, just in these two cold statistics, we see all these people, the stories, the dreams, the hopes, gone. The fact is that there's DNA that isn't on the globe anymore. There's human genetic DNA that isn't alive on the globe today because of the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu was more of an evolutionary choke point than, say, Hitler or Stalin or Genghis Khan or any of the wars that America was combined in. I mean, when you start thinking about, as the CDC claims, half a billion people in modern times, the tale becomes apparent. It draws closer towards you. Now, it's important to understand that that number is not a universally agreed upon number. And there are fascinating you know, ideas as to why that is. Um, one idea is, and you see this even in modern pandemics. So one idea essentially is that, you know, certain places um, have different standards for declaring somebody dead. That is for identifying a dead person and they have different standards for causes of death and there's a very interesting societal situation going on with the Spanish flu that you know we in the modern Western world can kind of um, forget and that is that essentially in the West we're used to some sort of a social safety net you know, in 1918, they didn't have that. Now, it wasn't anywhere in the world that, that they have a social safety net. So, essentially, what you have is you have, um, basically, you have people, um, you know, they die because the man in the family who was going to go out and earn a living dropped dead from the Spanish flu. And this was a real, it had a real impact because healthy people tended to die more often than non-healthy people. 
that caught the Spanish flu. And this was because, as I've said, because of an immunostorm where the immune system of the person or the victim of the Spanish flu tries to, you know, fight. And in the process of doing that, it pops the uh, the capillaries and they bleed to death. But here's another thing that's a, a, a big distinction historically between 1918 and, uh, and 2020. Another reason why Spanish flu deaths were not contemporarily uh, interpolated, other than, of course, the lack of science or lack of standardization of ideas of science and concepts of science, was something far more insidious and far more important. And that, of course, is that in 1918, it was you against the world or your family against the world. So the government wasn't going to help you. There was no relief agencies from the government. And the relief agencies that there were were religious-based. And oftentimes, they were only for, say, Christians. You know, there were Jewish relief agencies. There was actually a, a fairly large Jewish relief agency based out of Baltimore which ended up serving, uh, to some degree or other, you know, large swaths of the country uh, at that time. But what you didn't have was you didn't have relief agencies for African Americans. You didn't have Italian American relief agencies per se. You wouldn't have had Catholic relief agencies. So, like, each faith was on their own, right? So, like, there was more of a unit of, uh, the units were smaller, and because the units were smaller, the help they could deliver was smaller. And here's something, you know, as you study history, here's a very interesting uh, concept that historians know today. And that is that we in America today have a national culture, a sense of a national culture, which they, in 1918, would not have had. And if they did, it wouldn't have been the same. Um, so whereas today, like, when something happens, hor- when something horrible happens in Oregon, like, I, me and Georgia, I can, I can become aware of it, and I can read about it, and I can even get on Twitter and talk to people about it were there but you know in 1918 you know I might not know what's going on in uh, several towns over let alone across a continent and so that feeds into all kinds of expectations about life and, and, and not just my life but how I think other lives are supposed to go um, so you know all these little I guess differences play out into into how the world goes in 1918. And again, here's another thought that I that I keep having. And it's a, it's a theme that I keep seeing in the research of this 
about this flu, and that is this, that 1918 was very, very seriously a transitional period in time. So you had, like, you know, the steam engine and locomotives, and you had national and international trade could happen a great deal faster, certainly much faster than it had before. Okay. So, but all that was new, and you still had people that were thinking in terms of the speed of the horse and carriage. They were thinking in terms of of the cart. You know, I, I read uh, for this, there was some thought that the telephone could actually spread the Spanish flu. That is somehow like the Spanish flu was transmitted across wires. Now, obviously, very obviously, the, you know, the people working at uh, in the Bell Labs or Edison Labs or whatever, they, they probably, they most likely would not have thought, you know, you could get a virus over the wires, right? Of course. But did the politicians think that? Did the doctors think that? You know, and maybe one doctor wouldn't have thought that, but maybe another doctor who might not have had the greatest background in science to begin with, as I've said, maybe that doctor would have thought, oh, I don't know, maybe you can. Who's to say you can't? And, I mean, you look at, okay, as, a, as an example, and this is a perfect, I think, honestly, a perfect parallel. Look at, for example, with this coronavirus or COVID-19. All this talk about how you can get COVID-19 through 5G somehow, through like 5G internet. And, uh, you know, can you, can't you? Um, I don't think so, but I'm certainly not disparaging anybody who thinks that. I don't think so, but... You know, some people think that, or some people, you know, they're they're suspicious of it. Say, so it's not, you know, and that's that's another thing. We tend to think of people of a different time as foolish. You know, we moderns, we know everything. You know, that's that's a um, a function of our society or of our civilization. Um, the, the great podcaster, the great and glorious podcaster, Dan Carlin, talks about how if you think of our civilization as though it's on a stock market, we've had a thousand year run of highs. Uh, you know, our science and our technology is at a thousand year high. So, of course, you know, we look at somebody... 102 years ago and we think well obviously they they didn't know any better so obviously they're stupid or foolish and I'm here to tell you that they're not they were just going off of the information they had at the time and that's important to understand in these transitional time periods is that you might even have like you might have somebody who they might be at the cutting edge of 1918 thought. 
on a whole host of things. But they might be working or living or whatever with people that are thinking about life in terms of post-Civil War realities and post-Civil War thinking. And you see this in the Franco-Prussian War with how you had cannons going up against, you know, basically little rifles, okay? So, you know, this whole period from, honestly, I would say, you know, the 1820s and 30s, right up until, you know, the 1918 flu epidemic, certainly encompassing World War One, was obviously a lightning fast, you know, transition period. I mean, think about if you had, let's think about this, consider it. If you're 80 years old in 1918, that means in your lifetime, if you're an 80 year old Southerner, in 1918 and they, they did happen they were rare but they happened but if you're an 80 year old southerner in 1918 in your lifetime slavery has ended and with slavery ending was you know you had a continued differentiation economically between the north of the U.S. and the south of the U.S. You know, and you had the steam engine proliferating, continually proliferating. And you had imperial weapons of war became mechanized. And you had the Industrial Revolution brought to bear, not just in your own life, you know, or certainly in the lives of your grandchildren, but you would have had the, you know, you would have had empire looking at the industrialization as a way to wage war. Where when you were born, say in the 1830s, they certainly were not doing that. Now, and here's the other part, that because we live in the day and age of the smartphone and because we live in the day and age of widespread higher education, so we're aware of trends. Certainly, if you're listening, to, if you're choosing to listen to a podcast about the Spanish flu, you're certainly aware of trends today. It's on some level that somebody, some fictional or hypothetical Southerner who was in their 80s in the 19 and during 1918 certainly might not have been. I mean, they possibly would have read the newspaper. But speaking as somebody who's read newspapers from America, especially small-town America in 1918, I don't know how much actual, what, what you would call, what anybody would call real news. I don't know how much real news you would have gleaned from a newspaper in 1918. So in, in some ways, night the flu, the Spanish flu, happened during this kind of a nap, or not a nap, but while the world was still much more localized than it is today, you know, almost to where you might not have even been aware of, you know, the 
things going on in your own city or maybe even in your own certainly not your own neighborhood maybe but your own city for sure beyond say the price of if you drove pigs to market or if you drove you know whatever like you'd be aware of your pig you know your agricultural situations but possibly not of, of the news and and here's another thing so what I consider news would not per se be what you know somebody else who's older than me would consider news and that's part of that's interest but also part of it is news diet so somebody in 1918 would have been much more um, attuned to say church gossip than say you or I would have if you're around my age and I'm speaking into a microphone blithely assuming that somebody's listening to this in the future of course I have an audience but you know the thing is the great thing about podcasting is this is a time machine I can talk to you at my point in time and somebody's going to listen to this later and I'm here to tell you that right now you know there's a news diet situation going on like there's a, a lot of talk one way or the other in America in 2020 about people's news diets. And that's not even a word that I would have heard 20 years ago. The term news diet is not a term I would have heard 20 years ago. Right? And it is now. And it makes me think, this person in 1918... Their news diet, if you want to call it that, wouldn't have been the news diet of, say, a doctor. It would have been much different, much, much, much different. So that news diet of this person, this 80-year-old person, probably would have been like family gossip or family gatherings or or whatever and they might would have they might have read like the local newspaper but you know maybe not and I'm speaking now as somebody who's read newspapers from 1918 there you know there's not outside of maybe the deaths from a certain battle um, that maybe the death in that town you're not going to get what you would call the, the wider picture, what the wider picture of the war. And, and you know, depending on the paper, the town paper might not even contextualize these deaths in a way that anybody would be able to, un, you know, today, any student of history or anybody interested in history would be able to understand, okay, so little Johnny who died in a trench in you know Belgium or France yeah he was from this town and he played baseball but it might not tell you you know what what the powers that be were thinking and maybe that's because of what we today would think of as classified information 
And maybe that's because they would have thought, well, the readers, you know, they're, they're just mainly wanting to know about the local boys. But then again, also, it depends on what they read. If they read um, something that was uh, more literate, it would have gone certainly into a great deal of depth, into a whole lot of things about the war. But, you know, so this whole thing about the news diets of 1918, I think it plays a lot into the research today of these wars and of the flu. And I also think that, and I've, I've got this from my friends and family, it's amazing how many people that I've talked to and the people I've talked to and then relayed stories to me. It's amazing how many people I know or whatever, that they know one person that might have died of the flu, but they're not sure. But that's all they knew. They, they didn't know. They hadn't contextualized the role of the virus in the wider world. Maybe not even in their family. So maybe there were these stories of, you know, Uncle Johnny or Great Uncle Johnny who passed away. But, you know, nobody really bothered to take it further than that. And that's the stories I've been hearing from my friends and family. And I'm just kind of thinking, uh, this is a pandemic that existed, of course, before, you know, like the modern media culture that we have today, before um, this concept of you have to revel in, you know, you have to revel in basically misery. I mean... And that goes doubly, I think, for social media. And I hate to say that like that, like you have to revel in misery. But it's true, like a lot of the, a lot of social media and a lot of media culture today, essentially just, it's about talking about how you don't fit into society instead of how you do. And you might want to say, well, Ben, that's, how very Republican of you or whatever. But the truth is that that's this concept we have that that everybody needs to hear my emotional pain or that, that everybody needs to hear my story of how this horrible thing happened to me is a new creation. So in 1918, they certainly wouldn't have brought up the, the m misfortune of their life. And if you think about it, being a kid, watching your people die in the house with you, I mean, that's horrible. That's horrifying. That's legitimately terrifying. And the fact that this, I guess, culture of silence existed meant that people didn't know about it. I mean, one of the reminders or one of the things that I'm reminded about with this is if you think about so like the the sex uh, like with the Catholic Church the problems with the the exploitation of the 
the the children and even in some cases, you know, adults at the hands of religious leaders. That went on for years and it was essentially something that went on for years and basically wasn't talked about in society at all and it, it was sort of kind of almost normalized. I mean, I, I can remember talking to Catholics you know, earlier in my life and it's amazing to me, it was amazing to me as essentially a Protestant how, uh, you know, I hesitate to use the word normal that this was for them or normalized, but it certainly was much more so than in wider polite society. And I, I guess the same thing with the Spanish flu and, and that, you know, there were these sort of hidden deaths and some of this hiding was... And this is important. Some of this hiding, of course, was out of, uh, essentially out of shame. Because one of the things that happened in the Spanish flu, and v indeed, most of these half a billion deaths, according to the CDC, were flu adjacent. So they were literally most of them at the hands of other people, be it, you know, uh, through through legal means or through juridical means or literally murder uh, partner partner killings as as I've said and probably will keep saying were ridiculously common so essentially you might start to think of the Spanish flu certainly I think of it this way almost like a hidden crime wave that came over the world you know, and people just didn't want to talk about it. And when you think about it as a hidden crime wave, you know, as somebody who's interested in history, as I am, I'm constantly thought, constantly I have this thought of, um, so in the past, at least in America, we certainly did not have the relationship with law enforcement um, that at least we're supposed to today. Um, in the past in America, you know, we had a very, a much more, um, basically like a much, much different attitude towards law enforcement. Um, you know, and you'll see this in Jesse James where you know, the James gang was actively helped by people in the communities from whom he was robbing against the police, even though these people weren't themselves helped by the exploits of Jesse James. And so when you think about the 1918 flu deaths, you know, you're sort of forced when you think critically about them to think of them as, you know, the sort of this missing piece of history, or not missing, but certainly obscured. There's an obscured sort of theme in history of, you know, people basically running from the law in very systematic ways. And you see this over and over and over again 
in American history. And throughout the course of this podcast, not just in this season of the Spanish flu, but in this podcast, that is one of the things that I would really love to touch on is our changing and evolving sort of, um, I guess if you want to call it anything, our, our evolving relationship with our own laws. Um, our, the American people's sort of expanding sense of self throughout our nation. Like, not only are you a part of your community or your farm, but you're a part of your county and your, your state, and then lastly, your nation, and where your nation fits into the world. So in 1918, we, we were just entering into this thought that, you know, we are part of, our nation is part of the state. Remember in 1918, and this is important to remember, that in 1918, you still had people alive who were vital and alive, who fought in the Civil War. That's important to understand the scar that the Civil War left on this country. And it's, we're still, in, in a lot of ways, we're still litigating that today on one side or the other we're, you know it's like we, we're still drawing these these fault lines politically based on a war that has been fought long ago and in 1918 that was still the case so in 1918 you still had people kind of not they didn't want to be as aware of what the people in other parts of the country were doing especially in the south so what you find is, uh, when you look at the Spanish flu, a lot of the flu deaths in the South, you know, they, you know, they might have been interpolated by researchers later, because the South, a lot of those doctors. So the thing about poverty is poverty tends to make you sicker. Right? You tend to be to be sicker because you're poor. So who's gonna be affected by the flu, right? People, not just people in the prime of life, but also people, you know, kinda teetering on the edge. A lot of a lot of uh, medical professionals call these things comorbidities or um, whatever, which that's a comorbidity is like a, 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 a you know, like a, a connecting part of why you died. So being overweight or being, having high blood pressure or something like that. Well, in the South in 1918, you didn't have overweight, you had underweight, which you know, leaves you vulnerable to the flu. But also, you know, so they might have, certain places might have wanted to obscure flu deaths. You know, one thing that this is, doing this podcast 
for this season has taught me about pandemics in general is that because pandemics are man-made, and that's a central theme here, because a pandemic is man-made, it by its very nature, it's political. You know, humans are a political animal. You know, you know the act of of living in a group is by nature political. You know, if you want to remove yourself from politics, go off and live on your own. You know, into the wilderness somewhere. But the second you get a, a second or third or fourth person in your happy merry band, you suddenly have politics. Now, in this country, we have. You know, tribalism is rampant and, you know, whatever. But I'm here to tell you, I don't think it was always, I don't think that's, I think it's new because we're aware of it more. But I don't think it was always new. I, You know, there was always some kind of tribalism. And I look at these communities that might have wanted to attract outside investment or other people and I see natural inclinations that might have come from a not necessarily a good place but a better place than we might be tempted to think in 2020 as they want to obscure this death to make it not a flu death to interpolate it as another sort of death. Anyway, this is sort of like a second overview of, of the Spanish flu. And I'm going to get into kind of more of the meat of the Spanish flu uh, later. Uh, thank you for hitching on this ride with me. Um, thank you very much, and I'll talk to you guys later on. Please remember to follow me on Twitter at, at Charlie Ben or at I'm sorry, follow me on Twitter at, at Ben's Charlie. And you can also, and this is important, you can also um, watch my YouTube channel, which is searchable at the History Voyager on YouTube. I'm going to be dropping a video probably tomorrow. I was going to drop one today, but things kind of got in the way. Um, anyway, this is uh, Benjamin Kitchings of the History Voyager uh, signing off. And as always, there's a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very much for listening to mine. I really mean it.